This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talkart. Welcome to Talkart. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am thrilled because our new book is in bookshops all over the world and it feels really good and this is a very special episode it was recorded live at the Dulwich Picture Gallery in South London with the amazing Irish author academic and broadcaster Emma Dabbery we love Emma Dabbery uh this was a really fun night we had a jam-packed audience in there and Emma interviews us for the next hour and a bit so it's all there for you to soak up and basically it's uh, a deep uh, interrogation of mine and Rob's art friendship and friendship in general, really, but also getting into the nitty gritty of what makes us tick when it comes to art. Yeah, and it was such a privilege to speak with Emma. I love her book so much. Don't Touch My Hair from 2019. Uh, it's just one of the best books I've ever read. And her other books like What White People Can Do Next are really worth buying um, about allyship and coalition. And I'm also really excited about her next book, um, Disobedient Bodies. So yeah, check out Emma as well. Thanks so much, Emma. We love you. And um, I hope you enjoy listening to this. So please welcome to Talk Art, Emma Dabry. <laughs> They've really been like on the publicity trail. Um, yeah, are you are you knackered or are you like buzzing? I think it's just a combination. I think we are we love it so much. Sometimes work is more fun than fun. Noel Coward said. <laughs> and if you're doing something you love, then it isn't work, is it? And we absolutely love this. So when we are tired, there is a sort certain exhilaration that goes with that because we're doing like something that we're highly passionate about. Yeah, I think we're, we're fueled by adrenaline right now, but then we probably are always. Um, <laughs> we've, we've recorded like 250 episodes so far in a few years, so, wow. you know, three years or so. So it's yeah. like that kind of speaks volumes, I think, about our hyperactivity. And it's been a really rewarding week in the sense of um, people getting the book. And, it, you know, there was actually a fan in Ireland who, um, I'm sure there's more than who one. found it. No, no, but he, he wrote me this really beautiful sort of message. Um, and there was a picture of him at his local bookshop and he was like holding it up and he was so thrilled it was on the launch day and it's things like that that you you know I've never met him before he's in a different place completely but it's really touching when when it reaches out like that and it reminded me a lot of when I was a teenager and I was really into Tori Amos the singer songwriter and she I always felt like why do people laugh at that I know it's my friend Susie I don't know why she finds that hilarious she's she's our biggest fan she's in the audience um yeah but it reminded me when I was a teenager and how her music really spoke to me. And I like that idea that culture and all, all kind of art forms can reach people in like towns all over the world and make them feel seen and connected and um, kind of stronger in a way. And I, I think that's the power of art for me. Yeah, art unites people, doesn't it? And we've really found that making a podcast, how many people connect to the podcast, but then connect through art to other people and find a community through the art that they like. This is amazing. I don't even need to ask you guys questions. You're just like, you're just on it. This is the easiest in conversation ever. Yeah, so that's actually one of the first things I wanted to like get into. This idea that's really like central to your work that like 
art is for everybody. And I wanted to ask you about both of your relationships to art growing up. Like, how were you kind of like introduced to art? And it was it something that you felt that you just felt really like comfortable around and was part of like, like your kind of everyday ordinary experience? Or was it something that you came to? And if so, what was that journey? Well, mine was cartoons. So I loved cartoons yeah. growing up, but like Ren and Stimpy, uh, Nickelodeon cartoons, Rugrats, Beavis and Butthead. I love Tintin comics. Uh, I love Bugs Bunny. I met Chuck Jones, who was the original animator at Hanna-Barbera. Uh, did Chuck Jones and Elmer Fudd and when they opened and they don't exist anymore but the Warner Brothers store they used to have them in towns and there was one on Regent Street and I was eight and I walked past and Chuck Jones was outside and I was with my mum and I went oh that's Chuck Jones and she's like ooh and then I went and said hello to him and then I said will you do me drawing and he said write to me and I'll send you something back so I wrote to him and he sent me back a Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd like original drawing it was crazy so that, but then I love cartoons and then I discovered Roy Lichtenstein mm -hmm. and the painting Wham and then Keith Haring and Andy Warhol and pop art. And yeah. I thought, I, I haven't got to grow up. I can literally go to museums and be a kid and love cartoons and become an adult and still enjoy this. And that was my love of going, I can love this. And then the YBA movement happened. So the Young British Artist Movement happened. And that was all happening when I was 16. And I suddenly thought I could be part of Andy Warhol's factory all the artists I loved had passed, but suddenly there was artists now that were doing incredible stuff. They were contemporary, the now. Yeah. And I could be there and they could make something and it could be on a gallery wall in, you know, a couple of months. That blew my mind and it, that that was the hook. So you were really following that YBA movement kind of like couldn't, in real in real time. Yeah, but you couldn't ignore it because all the red tops were so angry about you know, the shark and Tracy Emin's bed and, it, they yeah. were, and the Turner Prize. It was such a um, vitriol sort of rhetoric that was coming from all the press. But that caught me. The Daily Mail might have been slagging it off, but it made me go, oh, what is that? I love that. That makes it appealing. That makes, that yeah, makes yeah, yeah. it appealing because there's something naughty about it. And it was Britpop. You know, it was that time in, in London where it all felt London-centric, but pop was really, and the, the Brits abroad were kind of making a big impact. And... I think it just felt like a coming of age moment for me. Mm -hmm. For me, it was um, quite different. My mum, who is also here tonight in the audience, uh, Judith, <laughs> she worked in the Natural History Museum. So my first kind of eight, nine years of my life um, were spent often going up to the museum and going behind the scenes. And I think that probably gave me a subconscious idea that art was for everyone because even though it was dinosaurs and it was slightly different there was something really inclusive about that environment and I remember there being like big school trips and you know you go behind the scenes and there'd be so many people visiting the museum and I think that kind of imprinted something in my mind that you could make a, a public space that kind of lifted people's spirits mm -hmm. and um, in the household we had uh, reproduction prints of like Toulouse Lautrec and um, Andy Warhol's animals so the kind of um, zoo series that he did mm -hmm. of like zebras and different um, animals and I remember that very very vividly having a big impact on me and I think there was something about having those little windows like framed prints in the house and we even had a reproduction painting of Lowry by a, it was made by like an 85 year old woman in Reading or something mm -hmm. and it was like a, a painting and I remember thinking it was a real Lowry at one point <laughs> and the magic of that and I used to always not quite believe that it wasn't real like I think I wanted it to be real yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think all those kind of formative experiences were really powerful. And then I was making pop music from the age of 13. Um, sadly, my brother passed away and I started writing songs straight after he passed away. And um, I got really inspired by Frida Kahlo's life story because there was this idea in her work that you can somehow survive through trauma and that you can overcome challenges and personal struggles such as what I was going through and somehow make it positive and maybe help other people in doing so. And I was so struck by the stories of her early um, experiences physically with things like polio. And then she had a, a crash with a, a, a bus where she like hurt her spine and she struggled for the whole of her life with a lot of pain and um, you know physical disability. But she saw art as this way of like freeing your mind and liberating um, the body in a way. And I, I think it really, really had this massive impact on me. And I discovered Frida through the pop star Madonna. So it was kind of a really right. weird route. <laughs> 
What did Tori Amos bring you to <laughs> art-wise? Tori Amos spoke about art a lot. Her second album, Under the Pink, she saw as an impressionist painting. So I was also getting a lot of culture from her Fine. too. All right. We love Tori. <laughs> Tori was meant to come on the podcast. Oh. When? Yeah, w when we did the first book, we were going to interview her in America, and then the thing called the pandemic happened. Uh, and I still want to interview Tori because she knows loads about art. It and you will be proved wrong, Russell. I know, I believe it. Yeah. One of the things I find like so powerful about the book and also about the podcast and about your whole ethos is, I guess, the range of people that you speak to, the range of artists that you include, the, the breadth of kind of styles and traditions. And it makes, um, I feel like when I was growing up, I really didn't feel like art was for everyone. I really felt like art wasn't for me. And as a result, was resistant to something that I later really came to love and to get like a lot of pleasure and stimulation and satisfaction from. But because of certain ideas about um, who kind of constitutes an art audience, I didn't feel that included me. Yeah. Um, so when I asked you the question about why you were so kind of passionate about art, this idea of art being for everybody, I actually thought maybe one of you were going to say something kind of more similar to what I was saying. So I think that's incredible that it was so positive and you know important and transformational for you guys, but you also saw maybe that that wasn't, that everybody didn't have that sense of access, even though that wasn't your own experience well, and still yeah. sought to kind of bring more people in. Because usually I feel people are motivated by what they've experienced themselves. So I think it really shows a great deal of kind of like, I don't know, sensitivity and empathy to see that you're getting a lot from something and everybody should have access to that, but maybe they don't. But this was through books this wasn't going to like museums this was okay. later on in life seeing pop art but it's knowing that it was there yeah, and yeah, that yeah. if I did go I didn't need to grow up but all my information came from just sitting in WH Smith's and going to the art section and pulling the book out on David Hockney and then getting a bit scared because you see two men in the shower and putting it back in and then pulling <laughs> out you know something else it, it, it came from images being shown the images but it did it didn't feel like it was accessible and it didn't feel okay. like it was for me, I think being working class and not really having art given to us, mm -hmm. like, I, I, I keep saying this about storytelling, is that we've, we've given stories as kids through film and music and books, and we have the ability to critique them. And if you can critique something, it can become yours. So I can say, I like this writer, this book's great, this book isn't, I like this album, this is better than the other album, that actor's good in that film, it's not good in that film, but you can talk amongst your friends and there's a level of respect of opinion. But art isn't given to us in that way. We don't have the ability to critique it, so it scares us. But it is just storytelling, but in a different way. And as soon as you give someone the opportunity to say, that's shit, that's good, I like that. Oh, I like that because of this. Oh, I like that period in that artist's career. Then it becomes theirs, and then, then they're not as scared of it. It's just, it, it is scary, and everything that... I grew up listening to was so heavy and academic and they would all talk in hushed tones so art had this reverential sort of energy that was kind of quite scary in some ways and daunting so you'd walk into galleries and I would walk into a gallery and sort of apologize try and make myself as small as possible rush round and then leave and go sorry 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 I was in there and then sort of dart out yeah. and it takes time for you to go this fortress that is built around these paintings might feel intimidating, but the people who made these paintings want you in front of them. Yeah. So the person inside the building wants you there, even though the building might structurally feel like it's not for you, mm -hmm. it is. Yeah, I mean, even in this room right now, this is the most beautiful um, array of paintings around us. And the people who made these paintings in a very different time, obviously, because these are all like older paintings, but th th I think the thing they share with contemporary artists is the generosity of spirit and the kind of joy of creating and the thing is you don't spend 
however many hours these artists will have spent, you know, like months and months and months and months making all these paintings for them to be locked up in in, in a cupboard. You know, they did it to try and inspire people. And particularly these kind of works, they're all about like elevating the soul, elevating the mind. Mm -hmm. So they wanted them to be shared. But I think it's true. Like I I educationally stopped studying art really young. Mm -hmm. So I stopped at about age 11. I always felt really like I could not express myself through making art. And I was terrible at drawing terribly even really interpreting paintings and stuff I I just didn't really get it that's why I liked people like Warhol because it was more like contemporary and I kind of related more to it but um art history as a genre terrified me and Mm -hmm. I remember in the sixth form um after my GCSEs you had an option to do art history and I never would have taken that course and I remember like awkwardly like walking through as they were having seminars and just thinking it was so stuffy and so kind of like like thousands of years ago, it just felt like this kind of history that was totally not able to- It's heavy, it's just Not relevant. Yeah, not relevant somehow. Mm -hmm. But the more I've begun to learn is that it's actually really fascinating. Because those stories at that time, Russell always says like, were contemporary. Yeah. These were were all contemporary artists at the time they were making the work. Yeah. Yeah. So they weren't thinking I'm already 600 years old making the painting. They're making it in the day and age and that that reflects the time that they were in. And also that they had loves, they had losses, they had joys they had successes they had tragedies just like we all do and the thing that i think is magic now is there's so many people even like katie hessel who does the great women artists there's there's a lot of different people now who are kind of um bringing to life history in a way that hasn't happened before and that's what's exciting it's almost like sister wendy we need more people like her as well i love sister wendy she was so amazing who's sister wendy for those who don't know she was a nun she was (laughs) a nun who was obsessed with art yeah yeah and later in life became very famous for making documentaries about it and her passion was just so pure and it it resonated around the world but I think it's cool now that there's younger people who feel like they can share their passion and Mm. I think um, I mean, I agree. I, I think a lot of us felt like the art world was a very elitist place, particularly yeah. the contemporary art world, like the commercial side of it. We would both go to galleries, like even ones that we now know really well, like White Cube. You'd go in and you'd feel like you weren't really invited. Yeah. And then you're meant to like write your name in like a, a book at the front. You never and I, do that. Yeah. And it's crazy, isn't it? When like, I bought a draw, I bought my first drawing when I did the History Boys movie. My first work of art was from the fee from that. I bought a Tracy M in monoprint. And I connected with the gallery, and it was when the White Cube was in Mason, uh, in Hoxton Square in Hoxton. And I met the woman who was selling the work to me, and she took me back through like an office, and there was all people sort of sat there. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, they're going to kick me out. And then I went into the back room, and she had them all at the table, and I thought any minute someone's going to go, come on, mate, yeah, yeah. get out. <laughs> Did I mean, and I suddenly look at these drawings going, am I allowed to like look at these? And she's like, yeah. I said, can I touch them? Yeah, you can pick them up and look at it. I was like, okay. I said, I can buy one of these. Well, if you've got the money. And I was like, okay. So then I, then I said I wanted one. And then I got it. And then the invoice came through. And there was VAT on top, yeah. which I didn't know about. Every time we buy VAT. And that point was 17.5%. I was like, do I have to pay that? She's like, yeah, you have to pay that. And I was like, oh, great. I didn't factor that in. And that's the worst thing about buying art. But um, <laughs> I, rem- I just remembered feeling like, even when I was there yeah. as a punter, yeah. able to buy art, I still felt like I shouldn't have been there and I was like slipping in the back door. When did that change? When did that change? I don't really know. I mean, I still have moments like that where you feel like, do they know that I'm here? I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. Am I going to get rumbled? Yeah. Am I going to get rumbled? Like imposter syndrome, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I think the last, I think meeting you probably 2008, I mean, we would go to parties Tracy Emin would have parties and I'd be at these parties and I just feel like everyone was looking at me like what the hell are you doing But we started here? going together to things. Yeah, and it was like we had like... And I like think that, that friendship led to us both feeling like more more like we could carve out our own place in that world. And I think for me, becoming friends with Tracy Emin, for example, there were loads of artists we became friends with, um, a lot through Maureen Paley's gallery, like Rebecca Warren, we became very close to. And I think that friendship in particular was really crucial to me feeling like I was valid because I really respected her. And I also really respected Tracy and for them to then take us seriously and our passion seriously. I remember the first time I met Tracy was on the South Bank in London and she'd made this, um, this giant flag that was waving and it said something like one secret to save the world. And it had all these little like, um, like images all over it. It was a huge kind of tapestry flag thing. And she was doing this South Bank talk that day. And someone at White Cube called me and said, look, Tracy's there. 
just run down and see her, say we've sent you. So I went down and there was crowds of like 300 people and I thought I'm never going to get to meet her. She was signing autographs at this fence and I went up and I said, oh, Graham told me to come and say hi to mm -hmm. you. Um, I'm a young collector. I'm obsessed with your work. And she was like, oh, jump over the fence. Come join oh, wow. me. And I didn't have a ticket for the event. And mm -hmm. she sat me in the front row. I was literally sat right there. And then she read Strangeland and... Um, that's exploration of the soul yeah. to two pieces of writing that she'd written and she like read them to me and just kept looking at me the whole time and we were with like ronnie wood and like all these kind of famous people and it was just she immediately just accepted the fact that and she said to me the other day that she remembers meeting me and thinking this young person is so weird because there were no young collectors <laughs> as such and she just found it so odd that she was like she felt she needed to almost protect me i thought i was the only one yeah and then Tracy had a retrospective in 2008 in Edinburgh and they said, oh, you're coming up there. And as I walked in, they went, oh, you're Tracy Emin's youngest collector. And I was like, yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, me. And they were like, it's me. And they were like, well, thank you for lending your little painting to the show. And I was yeah, like, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't got a little painting I've lent to the show. I've not done that. <laughs> they were like, oh, I thought you were the youngest collector. I said, I thought I was too. Yeah, yeah. They went, oh, it must be someone else's. So I was like, who the fuck is this? <laughs> Young collector, who the hell is this? And then when we sat down next to each other, and it was a little bit like, so you're the youngest collector, are you? <laughs> and then we bonded over titles of Tracy M in monoprint drawings. And I would be like, I like this drawing. He'd be like, I like that. I nearly got that. I like this drawing. I have this drawing. What do you think of this one? And everyone around us was like, you guys are weird. Yeah, and like we were so obsessed that White Cube actually let us go into their archive and I would sit in Hoxton Square on computer, like PC computers. They didn't even have Macs because um, I, I love Macs, but they, they don't. And, um, <laughs> and, and I would go through all of her drawing titles and look at all these drawings because none of them at the time were published. That's how geeky we were. Yeah, they were. It was like kind of embarrassing. Desperate. We were desperate yeah. for um, content. Yeah, and I, I remember buying like a little watercolor and it was like maybe 2,000 pounds, which at the time was like an insane yeah, yeah, like investment for me. Mm -hmm. And I was paying in installments for it. And it was a little portrait of her face. And at the time, no one was thinking about her painting because she wasn't really making paintings. And she was also really struck by the choices I think we were making because yeah. we were buying quite unexpected parts of her work mm -hmm. and very personal things. And I think that's why she trusted us so quickly. That, yeah, I, I had so wanted to ask you like about your friendship because that's such like um, a key part of what you do. Mm. I was yeah fascinated to know. I didn't know how you guys had met, so I was like really fast. So that's really like fascinating to hear. So yeah, how long ago was that? Two thousand and eight. Two thousand eight, we met. Yeah, I and we're kind of sizing each other up as we were there the with competition. Our, yeah, to start <laughs> with, we were there with our boyfriends at the time who were long gone and. Uh, <laughs> We were, they sort of were like like moved away like what the hell is going on that's here that's the other thing everyone always says like oh did you ever like were you ever like romantically attached and neither of us ever were attracted to each other but yeah. we were just the intensity of the intellectual bond was mm -hmm. immediate and it really freaked people out it made both our boyfriends at the time incredibly jealous yeah, when yeah. there was no validity in that at mm -hmm. all um, because it was weird it was almost like seeing a mirror image of the way that I cared about art mm. in you. But I think we'd both grown up at a politically similar time. Yeah. We'd both grown up knowing we were gay at a time when it wasn't necessarily acceptable. Through Section 28. Through Section 28, exactly. And I think that is why the podcast became what it has become. Because neither of us started the podcast deliberately. It was kind of an accident, genuinely. Mm. No agents were involved. Like Russ actually convinced me to do it. Like I didn't even want to do it. After the fourth episode, we interviewed Pedro Pascal. I burst into tears halfway through the episode because I felt like so, like I shouldn't be doing this. Really? Yeah, because I was just like, why am I doing this? Like I'm not a broadcaster. I shouldn't, I, I felt like I wasn't allowed to talk about art because I wasn't legitimate. So even at the point we started the podcast, we didn't feel like we were an authority. Yeah. And I think going into it like that meant that we created this show that no one was expecting. Mm -hmm. And um, through our shared experience individually, I think we have a very strong, like you mentioned earlier, sense of um, solidarity, empathy with other people that have had traumatic, challenging, different experiences who have different perspectives in the world. and. I never knew either of us had that. And if you look at now, Russell's choices acting wise, you know, he's restaging Derek Jarman's Blue, which is 
a really amazing thing to do to remind people of what happened in the AIDS crisis. He's also just made a documentary about David Rebilliard, who was an artist that died really young, early 90s, and has pretty much been forgotten. I mean, and now the work is still like a few hundred pounds to buy now. And he's made this beautiful love letter to that artist. And I think both of us have this this kind of shared sensibility of wanting to platform and highlight people who have struggled yeah. and tried to improve the world through through that little contribution to culture. Mm-hmm. And the more we do it, it seems like other people want that too. And it's a global community. The podcast goes out to like 160 plus countries now. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's incredible. It's wild. And where did the idea for the podcast come from? So you had to persuade Rob but um, yeah, why did why did you want to do the podcast? Why did it come up? I, I did Jesse Ware's Table Manners, and before that, I was thinking about it. Then I did that, and they were just I was just sat around with Jesse and her mum Lenny, and they were making dinner, and Rocky was sort of running around, and then her brother popped in and out, and it just seemed so easy and casual. Yeah. And then it was put out in the world, and I said, well, why don't we just make something that's really casual? Oh yeah, because we did an interview together. That's how it happened. Oh, yeah. We did an so interview. So we did that. Then I did in, that. And then in, I... Yeah, exactly. In West London, somewhere in this weird, like, pink hut in the middle of like <laughs> Shepherd's Bush. But it literally is the weirdest thing. It's like a huge park with this little recording hut that's bright pink. I mean, it's the most surreal thing you've ever seen. And we did it in there, and it was talking about prints and why they're they're a good idea for people a to like invest in and b printmaking as a kind of accessibility thing, art for all. Actually, that's probably where the whole thing came from. We recorded that. It went out on somebody else's podcast, and my mum and Russell's mum heard that episode and said to us you guys have an amazing chemistry with each other I didn't realize that's what your friendship was we feel more let in to your like secretive world of the art world because they were looking at us spending a lot of money buying artworks you know we were both buying drawings spending thousands of pounds on things they must have thought we were crazy (laughs) and we were really young at the time so they were probably a bit like cautious about it and I think for them they got to see our passion and it was your mum and my mum that really like pushed us to to make a show. Yeah. And my mum had always said to me as well, keep a diary. She wanted me to keep a diary Great of advice. all the amazing people that I was meeting when I made my music. And I just wasn't interested in writing things down. And I'd never realized that broadcasting was even an option for me or something I'd be good at. Mm-hmm. But as you can hear, I can't stop talking. And, <laughs> but it's not something you know until it gets recorded. Yeah. And even the intro when we did it the first time, we hadn't even planned it out. You just said something like Dermot O'Leary. And I was going like, hello, good morning, good evening. And I was like, where did you get that from? <laughs> In an Australian accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I literally just went like, welcome to Talker. And it was all totally spontaneous. Yeah, It I wasn't think planned. That's like so part of the magic of it though. It's so organic. And you so feel like you're just kind of listening in on like a conversation between friends. And I think that's something that really jumps out um, about the book as well. I don't know um, if you all have copies yet, but I'm sure you all will by the end of the evening. Like some of the conversations, like with people like Tracy and with Lindsay, you spoke about community. And I'm gonna get to kind of, I'm gonna get to Margate and asking you a little bit more about that in a moment. But um, I think again, that sense of friendship and so many of these conversations revealing um it's not like you're just interviewing strangers but they're just like intimate conversations you know with like really fascinating detail that i don't think would be so easily um you wouldn't really be able to draw it out of people if there wasn't that kind of like friendship or community yeah but i think a lot of people don't realize how much art is in their life or how much they're affected by it big time until you start talking about it until you start realizing, go, oh, yeah, I did do that. I did go to that museum and I do like that artist. Yeah. I have got that actually on my fridge. And that moment I went there made a big difference. And it, it opens up. It's a way of accessing something. Art, art does that. And art, it's just, it's just a very unique way. And so many guests we have on who aren't artists, who, are, who love art, mm-hmm. never get asked about it. So yeah. suddenly they come on and they're able to talk about something they're highly passionate about and enthusiastic about in a really safe space where they're met with fellow geeks who just want to hear everything as well. We, we care. And that we, we started this because we want to know everything. We're very archaeological with, with art. We yeah, want yeah. to peel back all the layers. And we want you to show us what you know. And everybody knows stuff that everybody else doesn't know. And that's the thing. I think it's also become a really great way of uh, creating a portrait of each guest because... Um, 
especially the collectors, for example, all the art they're buying, they're all like these little moments from their life stories. Or even the artists, when they make them, it becomes this kind of like, um, it's almost like a time travel, you know, to different points in their history. Mm -hmm. And they can talk about it, but not in a literal way. It's kind yeah. of like a creative way. Yeah. And I think art has the power to reveal yourself to oneself. Like yeah. standing in front of a painting, it's not just about what that artist was doing. It's like this kind of space that you can, it's almost like a mirror that you can somehow reflect and work out your own, you know, psychology through spending time with art. And I think that's what I, I never expected the show to be. It was almost, in the early series. I remember it feeling a bit like we were in therapy. Like we, we the first yeah. ever guest we interviewed because of my mom again was Michael Craig Martin because she was a big fan of his and wanted to hear him talk. And I think we spoke for something like two hours to him. And we were meant we were told by um, the powers that be, you know, like the the distributor and Russell's agency that you should be doing like 15, 20 minute podcasts. Mm -hmm. And we realized immediately we couldn't. And it was at that point we <laughs> were just possible. like we're actually just going to do what we want to do. And we just did long form. We did edit his down maybe to an hour and a half, but, mm -hmm. but it was just so beautiful to hear people unfiltered and just able to speak at length about something that you never really heard that much about and hearing it from the source. So actually archiving the artist's voice, I think that's become a big yeah. uh, passion for both of us. Yeah, yeah. I think what you say about um, kind of conversations being in depth, and allowing people to speak at length is so important and is actually like such an antidote to that assumption that people do just want really like bite-sized kind of like buzzwordy versions of things because I actually think because we're given that so much at the moment there yeah. is actually a huge thirst I, I think it's a form of control I think it's actually a form of control I think it's about trying to minimize people's um, intellectual capacity mm -hmm. because then you can control people easier and I think everything we're about is trying to inspire people to learn more and to be educated in a really fun way and to try and improve yourself on some level yeah. and improve the way that you treat others and I, I I'm convinced that it's like you know it's a great thing and, and we, we have like a really high listen rate as well so there's something like 93 percent of the each episode gets heard so it's like most people might check out after 10 minutes, but they actually stay all the way to almost the end of the show, which is kind of amazing. And I think you, you can't like underestimate people's thirst for knowledge and you shouldn't patronize, you patronize people. No. Yeah. yeah. I think people, or the guests. Yeah, yeah, and I think people are often, audiences are, are often hugely patronized. Um, what you were saying about it being educational, I think that's also something that I love about the book. Like there's, there's, it's such, there's such a wealth of information in here. And there's so much varied information. You know, there's so much about like different people's practices, processes. There's like little kind of like gossipy tidbits of pop <laughs> culture. It's got like everything, um, but it never feels didactic or it never feels like, oh, this is like a bit of a slog, but you're actually absorbing so much information. There's a great deal of knowledge, but it's like very lightly held. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I think we love 
we made it because we love reading interviews. Everybody loves, well, I assume everybody would love loves reading interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always have, and it, this has always been a dream to release an interview book. And so when we had the first book, which was a guide to contemporary art, basically talk art style, and then they said, what do you want to do next? And we just said the interview book. I was more cautious about it, actually. I felt a bit like, because they're, they're, they're transcriptions of the interviews that are on the show. But when we started transcribing them and we edited them down, I started to read them myself. And I didn't remember loads of it. And seeing it written on the page mm-hmm. and reading it was such a different experience. And your dad even said that, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, I read your message. It was so my sweet. Dad. But the Piers Brosnan story, so he was an artist before he was an actor and he used to have an art studio that was next to the film set. So he would go and do a stunt as James Bond and then he would nip next door and do some paintings and that was his way. And then his wife sadly died of cancer and then his daughter died of the same cancer and he turned to painting as a way of dealing with it. And these paintings are incredibly bright and you'd look at them and think they were really joyful and alive, but it's yeah. his way of kind of getting through it. And anyway, so my dad, my mom and dad listen to every episode. And if I get like... As does my mum. And we know if we've got a successful episode, if they text us and say, we really enjoyed it, because then you know you've kind of, you've, you've fulfilled the purpose of Talk Art, which so is my to dad, please our mums. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you get I love good, how central your, par- your parents and your mum are oh, yeah. narrative. Oh, you should have seen, seen them last night. It was like, they were on... My mum met Edward Enningfall and she resubscribed to Vogue when he took over. Oh, fantastic. And um, he wrote to me today and said, I love your mum. Oh, so wow. that's very sweet. Did you know yeah. that, Judith? Hi, praise. Edward Enningfall loves you, mum. <laughs> so no, my dad said, he said, I just read the Pierce Brosnan interview. How lovely was that? I preferred reading it to hearing it on the podcast. Ah. You take more in. Think this book will be a big success. Well done, Kiss. And I was like, it's sweet, isn't it? And I was like, that's amazing. Yay. That's why we sort of do this because it's, this is, uh, what's brilliant is that we do have art world kind of people that listen and we mm-hmm. have artists that are in their studios and they say they listen to talk art while they're painting, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. the biggest like ever accomplishment that we could have had. But people listen to it from all walks of life and it gets them into museums and it gets them into galleries and it gets them following artists on social media and it gets them buying and it gets them making. And we've literally heard story after story after story of people saying, because of Talk Art, I've gone to a museum. Because of yeah. Talk Art, I'm now a member of this gallery. Because of Talk Art, I've started making. I've, I've bought this, I've collected this. And they turn up and they buy the book and they go, it's just like wonderful. And I never connected on that level with anything like this when I wanted it. And if I'd have had this book when I was in, in them formative years, yeah. I would have been like, this is my Bible. This is with me everywhere. I swear to God, like I was thinking the exact same thing as well. I was like, if I'd picked this up when I was like 15 or 16, I would have also made connections because there's, especially when I was that age, there's certain people in, in here who would really like, well, still really appeal to me now, but would have really appealed to me then. And I, nef- I wouldn't necessarily have put them in the context with some of the other artists, but it would have like kind of led me to see the interconnectivity of lots of exactly. things that I didn't. That, that, that I didn't kind of understand at that age. And I think it would have kind of like, you know when you were saying that um, sometimes people don't realize how influential art is in their lives. So even though I was just like, oh, I'm not into art. I don't know anything about it. In many aspects, I, I actually was. And yeah. I was engage, engaging with it, but I just didn't kind of recognize that or see the connections between different things. So I think this is like a really powerful kind of tool. I I think one of the things as well that I've learned through the podcast is the power of listening to others and to like taking in their experiences and not in a superficial way or even a sort of, um, I don't know, like theatrical way where you might be like, I'm so sorry for you. You know, it's more (laughs) like, it's more like you actually think about and sit with that in a kind of a very solitary way. Mm-hmm. And then I think that actually brings about change in the way that people treat each other. And I know that from holding the book when we first got the copy, it felt really weighty to me, all these kind of, and it's all these different life stories. Mm-hmm. And some of the artists in there like are lesser known than others at the moment, but yeah. in the future, they'll be really well known. And even since like um, it got published. So when we sent it off in November to be printed, some of the artists literally nobody knew at all. Yeah. And in the last six months, they're getting like to almost a million pounds at auction, you know, like getting super famous in their field. Um, but there's people who have really overcome huge personal struggle. Like um, Oliver Hemsley is an extraordinary painter and he was stabbed 
like numerous times and actually died on the street in East London. And then they, they actually managed to like bring him back to life. He got, he got to survive, but he's now in a wheelchair and he can only use one hand. And we, he, we met him through a mutual friend and, um, in that, even in the time I've known him in like six years, he has become the most extraordinary, Incredible. I think one of the most important painters and of our time. And he's not had an exhibition yet. He hasn't even done the exhibition yet. Mm-hmm. And we felt it really important to have him in the book because I really believe in him. He's incredible. And his persistence and his his the way that he will just like face um, adversity mm-hmm. and find a way out through making art. It's like for, from all the pain and all the struggle, it's just extraordinary and i just i think there's something that all the artists share is is this this kind of sense of survival and trying to find a positive in a really bad situation the compulsion to make Mm -hmm. isn't it and when when words aren't enough that's where the art comes from yeah and even ajamu x who we interviewed tonight right at the end we said like um what's the best advice and he was talking about without being an artist he doesn't think he would be able to exist or survive in life and that by being an artist he has a kind of creative creative collective of people around him that basically like keep him alive alive, and that without making he couldn't exist without making work which i just it's an amazing thing that people need it that much i I love that it's actually like a a lifeline for people yeah and i think the making can be a lifeline to people who don't make you know, like I don't make art, I never have done. Yeah. But for me, it's kind of saved my life in some way. Like it's given my whole life purpose. I think it took us a long time. I think it takes most people a long time to sort of come out as a, an art geek or an art nerd. <laughs> so when I was at school, to, sh- to show that you wanted to learn anything meant that you were gay, meant that you were ridiculous, you were mm-hmm. a, a dick. What are you doing? Why, why are you actually reading? Yeah. Why are you learning? So, yeah. I dumbed myself down, I made myself smaller, and all these things that I was interested in, I kept so quiet from mm-hmm. school because I wasn't really playing football and I wasn't doing the normal boy stuff. But as soon as I went, this is what I like, the world opened up. As soon yeah. as I went, I'm a nerd, I love art, I love this, I want to do this, I want to do that, and take up all the space, suddenly it's like all opportunities and all, all these moments and memories and meeting all these people came rushing forward, and they were all there just dormant waiting yeah, yeah, for the yeah. moment when you go I'm out here I am <laughs> but it takes like, school is so paralyzing and stifling it was for my time I'm hoping it's different now but I still hear stories now I saw a journalist the other day and her kid made these drawings in class and the other boys were saying they were shit and he's mm-hmm. gay and it broke him and he wanted to rip all the, all the drawings up and the mum took him off and I said this is that's so that's so dispiriting dispiriting yeah. and so um, but you you rise against it you know yeah you, yeah, yeah you go you you go against it like, like your story I mean you saying you what you experienced growing up through like racism but then then you you went into African studies and you like yeah. really got into that and I find that so inspiring that something that people were going to you about you were like I'm gonna know everything about it yeah yeah, yeah. I'm gonna own this this is mine and I'm also like just a massive geek. Like I'm really, really nerdy and really like obsessive yes. about certain things. But that was like deeply, in the same way that you were describing, that was like deeply uncool. That was like social death. So you do just kind of present this very often normative, one-dimensional yeah. version of yourself in order to just kind of- Blend. Yeah, but then that actually kind of what exactly as you say once you kind of like come out like unleash that free that inner nerd or that inner geek then you start connecting with others it's incredible and you realize there's so many it's, it's the, the power of being yourself of though it's, it's so it's so, it's so yeah. like naff in a way but like being yourself the more you can try and strip back all the layers that society's put on you and actually be your core self then actually that that's when you start connecting with people yeah. and i think i i learned a lesson from one of the guests as well somebody said to us really early on that like Um, what comes easy to you is your gift and it's the thing you should actually channel the most because what and obviously you have to like refine that and study and have discipline and improve but whatever it is that comes easy to you should be the path you go down which is a bit like broadcasting for me has ended up being this thing that I never I I always tried to do other things and actually I could have just you know I think when you find your voice it's kind of a powerful thing yeah well an example that is my boyfriend is now studying to be an architect and he came from scaffolding when I met him he was very hot 
and uh, he uh, he went into architecture and he sort of then all the structural stuff that around scaffolding he's been avoiding he's not been going anywhere near it and then towards the end now of his like first three years he started doing these scaffolding structures and they were like finally Steve he's like what do you mean they said finally this is what we loved about you and you've just been neglecting it and now this is what you do and he's like well I can do this stand on my head they're like great then do it because that's what we want and he's like oh right well I thought because it was easy everybody could do it and it's like no that's your gift and that's what you can do that's so relatable like like massively i i'm writing a play at the moment and uh, another book and i'm, all writing, right. I'm writing like all <laughs> <laughs> which i've already pre-ordered even though it's not even pre-orderable yet <laughs> thank, thank you, us, thank you for the support yeah. but like i'm getting like i'm writing all of this like deep dense like complicated theory and both like the director of the play and editor of the book are like just tell some fucking stories emma like the stories are like well the director's irish she said, the stories are great crack like the stories are hilarious like the theory yeah you're clever whatever but like tell the stories and i'm like but the stories are too easy i need to do the hard stuff i need to like yeah. kind of like bring my mind and all these like complicated so that's i learned so through you that irish immigrants introduced halloween to america yes they did <laughs> which i didn't know about i'm so proud that i was the source of that knowledge i just thought oh my god that's incredible <laughs> Yeah, and um, and in Ireland we didn't have um, pumpkins because they're obviously like quite tropical and exotic. Um, so we had turnips. So it was a carved turnip, but it's quite hard to carve a turnip. So they looked um, quite deformed. <laughs> it wasn't like the sharp lines of the yeah, carved yeah. pumpkin. Would they put like candles inside the turnips? I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. Right. I don't know any Irish in the house that might know there was candles in. The, they yeah. did put candles in turnips. Yeah. Great. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Yeah, okay, so back back to the book, away from away from pumpkins. Do you have any favorite interviews in the book? Um, I think it's hard to have a favorite because to be honest, I think every single guest we've spoken to has taught us something. Mm -hmm. And and these aren't even just like the highlights from the show. They're just we tried to have many different generations of artists, uh different kind of just different stories really. It's diverse as yeah. possible. Um yeah, I don't know. Who's who's a special one for you, Russ? I, I agree with you. I think there's no hierarchy on the show. I think that's why it works. We, one week we'll have Elton John and then we'll yeah. have a super emerging artist and we'll have a friend. And we're, we're not saying this famous person's better or this person's got this career or selling for this amount of money is better. We're just saying everybody's connecting to art and it brings all different audiences in from all over the place for the guests. So we don't have a hierarchy, but... Weirdly, the one, I know it's not actually in the book, but it might be in a future edition, but we did an interview in New York with Joyce Pensato, and she was a friend of Russell and mine, mm -hmm. and um, she died about two weeks after we did the interview, oh, wow. and we recorded it in her hospice, and she called both of us up saying, she hadn't actually told anyone when she was dying, she had pancreatic cancer, and she called us up and said, look, I've been meaning to come on the podcast for about six months, kept not happening because she was so busy. Now that I'm not going to be around, you have to come to New York, Will you? can I be on your show? so she actually asked for us to go and do her final ever interview and I think that meant so much on all kinds of levels because it brought so much joy to her and we had such a laugh and they'd reconstructed her studio in her hospice room oh, wow. so she had this tiny little room and they filled it with all of her paintings all of her even like Sly Stallone was a fan of hers she was a fan of his I think that's how it happened she was a fan of his he then heard she was a fan of his and there were like pictures of him Robert De Niro and Robert De Niro and like all of these people Italian Americans yeah, yeah. all these Italian American yeah. kind of icons and um and we had such a laugh and she was like gagging to do the interview and she really got to tell her story and there was something almost like about you know if you think of like witness testimony or mm -hmm. testimony mm -hmm. and like somehow archiving people's you know experiences you could just hear this kind of like little girl and she was in her 70s when she passed she died really young actually but she sounded so overexcited she and was joyful. it took me months after that to recover because we hadn't really taken on the weight of it either i think it was a, a lot wasn't it that is remarkable like i think that's, a privilege yeah yeah just testimony to like the power of what you do but the fact that yeah she that that she was going to pass away and she like that she wanted to do this interview is really that's really incredible it's very generous of yeah. her to consider us at that moment it's just like and also now brilliant. her work is getting more and more famous and it's like people can just go there and find the audio and it's it's really nice because i think it's a really well-rounded portrait of the whole of her life it's yeah. really beautiful 
there is there is such a range of people you know from just like globally like recognizable household names icons to people that are far more um, emergent and I love that sense that there isn't a hierarchy like existing but with that being said obviously some of them are like super famous do you ever feel and maybe it's not even the people who are most famous maybe it, it uh, yeah maybe that's maybe fame isn't the thing were there ever people that you're interviewing that you feel that you feel particularly nervous about or perhaps like intimidated? I was really by. nervous about Laurie Anderson because I grew up being obsessed with her. Mm -hmm. And um, she's up there for me with like Kate Bush. And we first interviewed Not her. Not Tori Amos. No, Tori <laughs> What is this horrible thing? <laughs> Susie keeps laughing at me um, in the audience. Uh, what was I saying? Oh yes, Laurie Anderson. So yes. we in, we got to interview her for an Andy Warhol in the pandemic. They had this Andy Warhol show at the Tate, and literally, as I think it was open for a day, and then the museum got shut, and it was a real trauma, I think, for everyone at the museum to have this show because all the loans had taken years to acquire. Mm -hmm. They'd spent some crazy amount of money on all the merchandise in the shop, and nothing was for sale. It was really a difficult experience for them. So they went online and they did all these talks, and they said Laurie knew him. And we got this chance and I thought it was going to be like a four, it was meant to be a 45 minute talk. And she only stayed on for 15 minutes, which was obviously a performance because 15 minutes of fame to the minute, ah. she, to the second, she literally just went at the end of the interview, she, uh, sorry, at the end of the 15 minutes, she just went, goodbye, I'm going now and just turned <laughs> off her screen. And we were sat there like, what? Because uh. <laughs> we're used to like long form interviews and she'd gone. So we then had to talk for like 45 minutes all about her work. It was just so Which awkward. Which was fine. It was fine. <laughs> Yeah. But it was really awkward and I was kind of gutted actually. And then later on, about six months later, she contacted us and was like, she can come back on because she was reissuing Big Science, her iconic album. And then we finally got like almost an hour with her. But even at the end of that hour, she was like, I've got to get a train now. Have to leave. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm really sorry to leave so soon, but I'm going to go. Bye. And, <laughs> and we were like, what? Sorry. I know. Yeah. I love her. But kind I, of iconic, I, she's though. so eccentric. So on, I was on tenterhooks that whole second interview. Yeah, Because I was sure. really aware that she was going to leave. At any and given she moment, did. she was going to abruptly bounce. <laughs> yeah. But she was amazing, though. And she spoke all about this project she'd been working on, which was um, getting all the local cars. She was staying in some, like, small town outside of New York somewhere. Car and opera, wasn't it? She was doing a car opera where she was getting everyone in the local community to park their cars. And then she'd get them all to honk their horns. And, <laughs> and I love this idea that you can make an artwork out of people's car horns. It's just so eccentric. Yeah, yeah. And I remember there's a really famous quote where she says that she called herself a multimedia artist really early on, like in the 70s, before anyone was talking about, you know, even video art, because it didn't really exist at that mm -hmm. point. But she felt like it was a way of liberating herself um, because she didn't want to be confined to having to make paintings, having to make photos, because at that time it was really like stay in your lane. So she was like yeah. a pioneer of, of like multidisciplinary art she really is like one of the first and i think that came from like you know lou reed like all of her collaborators mm. and um, partner and andy and all these people they they had this much more expansive view of what art can be yeah and i think that template is so important so i was really nervous before we interviewed her quite rightly it, it, it appears <laughs> and if madonna has recently started like following us listening to us and if we yeah. ever interview her i will I don't, be we don't know if she listens i will i will be i will be <laughs> um, nervous for that as well i've already prepared like what i'm gonna yeah, say you have to be calm for that yeah i know no of course you can't be like i like you she doesn't like she that she doesn't like sycophantic okay. sort of praise no Good we just we, we treat everybody sort of the same we do mm -hmm. separate research we never share notes so we come into all the interviews oh, wow with different interests and energies that yeah, are in yeah. it. And it's just about making sure that the guest feels comfortable and happy. And that's that's the pressure mm -hmm. of doing it. And I guess there are ones that you do get nervous about. But once we start, then we're... They, it, when, as soon as you see them relax, then we relax. I was nervous about Elton John as well because I didn't know him. Understandable. And, yeah, and but actually the minute he started talking, he was so passionate that it yeah. just like melted all nerves. And that's the thing, because people don't often get to talk about this subject. And they, they're geeks as well, really. So yeah. I think, yeah, a lot of people get nervous as well. And when you sense that someone else is nervous, I feel less nervous then because you want to counter that. Yeah, yeah, and there's so many young artists. And this has become a bit of a rite of passage for young emerging artists. And you can sense them kind of thinking, oh, God, what do I say? What do I do? So you just sort of slow down a bit and then you can feel them ease. And it's really lovely when that happens. You know what does make me nervous is having to do picture research for the book. 
It was so stressful. I find it so overwhelming because you have to get rights permissions for oh, every single image. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we were so lucky mm -hmm. and grateful to all the artists who like gave us their images because mm -hmm. it's, it's like a minefield, all of that stuff. And I had no idea how hard it is to put even there's like a hundred images in there. But you don't you don't have to. We didn't do, do this one. We did the, the first, first book. The first book I did Oof. pretty much all on my own. Wow, that's quite, an that's uh, oh here we go <laughs> you didn't do the picture research in the first book i did all Trouble the contracts in you, hon. <laughs> Promise you. he likes to think he did it but he didn't because i um, had about eight pictures in my first book and took i took you a year I, to get the permissions i think i tried to like kind of get the permission of like one of them and i was just like <laughs> oh my god and then yeah someone someone from my publisher took over like it yeah. really seemed like something that was quite challenging i love um i love the pictures i was posting today about um an artist that i discovered through the pictures. Michaela, you were dead. no it was um it's the one that's called 40 acres and a unicorn yeah it's um, um no, noah no, davis noah davis he, he, he died. Oh, he did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really young. I'm going to look more into his work because I wasn't familiar with him at all. And I just love that painting and, yeah. the, and the whole concept. There's so um, much. Yeah, the Underground Museum. That's why I'm looking. It was the Underground Museum in Los Angeles. Oh, so he founded that. And you, you should look into it because you would absolutely love it. It was all about community, essentially, yeah. and empowering people through art. And he's left a legacy because his paintings now sell for multi, multi, multi millions. And he died age 32. And the last year of his life, he pretty much set up this whole ongoing kind of um, foundation, which is a, a legacy that literally he died in 2015. And it's, oh, it's already it's like changed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds yeah. and hundreds of people's lives. He is such a generous person. Did he know he was going to yeah, die? Yeah, yeah. So he was right? dying from a soft tissue cancer. And luckily, he had enough time to really Jesus. think about what he wanted his legacy to be. And that's what I mean. It's like artists just think differently and mm -hmm. and that idea of like empowering people through art and helping people who are disadvantaged in LA to somehow have a better life even though you know you're going to die at the age of 32 it's extraordinary yeah absolutely um I wanted to ask you about um oh yeah actually something that I just wanted to pick up on as well was um I think when you are known for something else, so obviously you interview lots of people who aren't themselves artists, but are just have like a passion for art or collectors, whatever. Um, but they're people that might be very well known for something else entirely. Um, and I think when you're known for a particular thing, and that's what you're always asked about and you always speak about, you're always asked about that topic, but then you have this other like great passion that you very rarely get to indulge, that nobody ever asks you about. Um, you're literally like chomping at the bit to talk about exactly, it. Yeah. So who who are maybe who are some of the people that you've um, that you've spoken to in in here that don't kind of that aren't that we wouldn't normally associate with Pierce art. Brosnan. I mean yeah, James yeah, Bond. Totally, I mean yeah. he, that that surprised so many people. Um, I mean you got Stephen Fry in there. It speaks about everything and knows everything about everything. That but, was one of the funniest interviews you've ever done. Really, you just couldn't. He, he just. I just can't get over his intelligence level and his knowledge. Yeah, he yeah. must have read more books than anyone on the planet. Because really? he can just talk and talk and talk. And he, he's always right. You can check it later. He's fact check always it. right. He, 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 just, he just knows all the facts. Yeah. I don't know how he, he does said, it. He, an incredible story he said that stuck with us is that he was in the Groucho Club with Francis Bacon and Gilbert and George. And they were wow. all getting very, very drunk. And he got to a certain time and he went, right, I'm going to go now. And Gilbert and George went, oh, no, you're a little fucker. You're not going. And they went, no, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And Francis Bacon went, you got a little man, haven't you? And Stephen Fry went, what do you mean, little man? He said, you've got a little man inside your head that says, come on, time to go home. Look after yourself. Go and have a shower, brush your teeth. You've got him. Look after that little man. Some people haven't got him. And as soon as that went, I've got a little man. I've got a little man that says to me, come on, get home. Your mum would be upset if you're out now. And then I think even if you don't have the little man and you can recognise that in yourself, you can then kind of, like think about that concept and yeah. be like, how can I, how can I develop <laughs> a relationship? You've got a little man. With... You look after yourself. As I get older and I slow down and but with being a parent and everything. Yeah. Actually... I'm trying to think. What is it like for you now, though, with kids? Like, you know, growing up, we're talking about representation in art, and you said you didn't really see yourself. Mm -hmm. How do you feel now in today's age with art and diversity in art and how many people are represented? Do you feel like your kids are seeing a different world to what you saw through art? Yeah, like absolutely. And I think um, another, you mentioned not being able to draw. I actually, my three-year-old, I don't know if he can draw, but my 10-year-old is actually, 
I don't know if he's quite good at drawing or he's just learnt to draw because he really, really loves cartoons and his dad really loves comics. So he really loves comics and they draw lots of comics and cartoons and stuff. So he's learned how to draw. Um, I never learned how to draw and I didn't have any natural kind of um, disposition to just be able to draw either. So I also thought because I couldn't draw that art wasn't for me. Art was for people who could draw right. and who could paint. And that was my conceptualization of what art of what art kind of constituted. So you talking about like kind of multi well multidiscipline disciplinary artists and mixed media artists and there's so many I think now there's just an, a knowledge that there's so many other forms that like kind of constitute art. Yeah. So I think even outside of there being greater like representation of the types of people who are making art, there's just a greater understanding or acknowledgement of what actually constitutes art, yeah, yeah. which I think is is really powerful as well. And I'm actually in my my PhD is partially practice based. And I'm making, I'm working on a projection for that. And that is something that when I was younger would have been kind of inconceivable. First of all, that a projection would be art. And secondly, that I'd be doing something academic that had a practice-based element. Mm. So yeah, I think things have opened up like massively. Yeah. Because you, know, and what, what, you, you moved to Margate as well. So what, what's Margate like for your kids? Because do they, do they go to the Turner or to the, have they been to my gallery or Quench or do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, so um, my kids have spent lots of time in galleries and museums and stuff. I'm a trustee of a contemporary art museum in Dublin, so mm. they go they go to that quite regularly. And What's it called? Home, the Hugh Lane. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> little whoop where Francis Bacon's always... studio yes, is, indeed. which is incredible, yeah, yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah. So you've been? Have you been? Yes. Yeah, oh, amazing. Okay, actually, there's a big Warhol exhibition opening there in September, so like, please come. Wow, has everybody been to this museum in Dublin? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's incredible. Yeah. And the, Francis Bacon's whole studio has yeah, been... Yeah, has been... Um, like, and even, even the steps going down, they were like in the floor, cut into the floor. So you can yeah, see yeah. the steps he took down to his studio and then it's recreated in there. It's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, so, yeah, and in terms of the Carl Friedman Gallery, um, my kids were just there last week. Oh, for To yeah, Be Held. Oh. for To Be Held. And they loved it. And I also... Um, I feel like the tactile nature of it, the way, uh, this is an exhibition that, an, an incredible exhibition that is currently on in the Carl Friedman Gallery in, um, in Margate, which is the gallery that um, Rob runs. Uh, yeah, there's like lots of, so as well as like sculpture and paintings, there's also um, bigger pieces and there's furniture and you can actually like sit on the furniture. But I, when I say furniture, I feel like I'm not doing it justice. Like it's yeah, it's kind of like design. contemporary furniture and design. design. Yeah, yeah. yeah. very ergodynamic. And we've actually mm. transformed the gallery. So there's even like carpet on the floor. All the walls have been painted. So it almost looks like clay. And it's this completely immersive environment. It's been, and 23 Beautiful. artists in the show. So it's been like the biggest thing I've ever been involved in. And when Rob says there's carpet on the floor, it's more than carpet. It's like, it actually feels like a, the whole space feels like yeah, yeah, and it yeah. really has created this sense of actually being like physically held yeah, totally, yeah. in the space it's, it's really like a remarkable exhibition like I really encourage you all to come to Margate and, and check yeah. it out so yeah they were just there last week um, and they've been in there they've been in there other times as well so yeah yeah so I think it's, it's kind of a different a different world to the one that I was that I was growing up in yeah, yeah. So yeah, what, like in terms in terms of Margate, yeah, can we talk a little bit about what's going on there at the moment? We used to show in um, Shoreditch, and we had a very small smaller gallery, and it was much more like a display space. So you would kind of do exhibitions, and it was all a place where people would come and buy a painting. Whereas now, since we've moved to Margate, we're doing much more expansive exhibitions, and the space is obviously much bigger. But I think it's become a place for um, sort of social change, new ideas. Uh, trying to have a bigger conversation and um, an experience for people because if you're coming all the way to Margate from wherever it may be, even from London, it's like an hour and 25 minutes on the train, mm -hmm. then you walk to the gallery, you know, it's two hours pretty much and then you want to kind of reward people <laughs> for yeah, having yeah, made yeah. that journey <laughs> and, and to leave feeling like they've experienced something mm -hmm. and Russell actually curated a show there called um, Under the Breakfast. Breakfast Under the Tree. Breakfast Under the Tree. Yeah. And um, and it's been an opportunity to kind of highlight new voices as well. Yeah. Um, I think Margate's just got a whole uh, like art community that's building and, and supportive of each other. And Tracy Emmons opened the art school. So mm -hmm. now that, that energy is there and it's really foodie. It's super queer. 
you know, and where, where the gays are is happening. And, <laughs> you know, it just feels really just incredibly exciting there. You can feel it. It's palpable. Yeah, there's yeah. a buzz and it feels like there's hope. It's hopeful and it's crafty mm-hmm. and it feels like everybody wants to better themselves and better the people around them and better their environment and that's kind and of a bit a like thing. you know you've moved there yourself and mm-hmm. you're a writer so mm-hmm. like you you're there sort of doing something you know um for yourself in a sense and i think people have, have moved there wanting to often focus uh on a hobby they might not have had time to do elsewhere yeah, yeah. and then that becomes something like i know people that started making ceramics as a hobby in margate and are now living off selling their ceramics do you yeah. know what i mean like yeah, 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 that's yeah. the kind of thing that happens there it's like and it's all different there's like poets there's writers there's filmmakers mm-hmm. there's artists there's political thinkers there's all these different kinds of people there yeah and it it, it, it all kind of feeds in I, i've just never experienced anything like it they're it's, all together it's like a big uh, melting pot yeah of Stuff. It does feel like a special time, and I think they will yeah. write about it in the history books. It feels like something's happening. Yeah, um, it really feels like a special time. Yeah, um, yeah. There's so much going on, and thanks for introducing me to Ted. By the way, we're starting a yeah, but Ted's choreography. A really, Ted's a really great example. So Ted's an artist who works in performance. Yeah, and he's actually just become because Tracy didn't even really know him, and then she's met him recently, offered him to use the space that she has in her art school. He did this wild performance that like maybe 200 people watched. It was Mm. so exciting. And now he's the artist in residence, the performance artist in residence. And that's what I mean. There's this spontaneity and flexibility in Margate where like one week you don't even have a performance artist residency and now the next week you do. You know, it's like like the artists themselves are kind of creating opportunities for themselves. And that's what I love about it. It's just this generosity and like together and it sounds really like it's not real but it actually is real actually is real <laughs> and we talk about Jimi Hendrix in the coffee shop oh my god like, like so when I met you I think that was only like maybe the third time we'd met or something and I was actually really embarrassed because I was like oh my weirdness like totally came out like, I didn't have time to like kind of like uh put on like my mask of normality because I was just like running um, and listening to Jimmy. I'm obsessed with Jimi Hendrix. I was like listening to Jimi Hendrix and I was literally feeling like transcendental. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sweating. Yeah. It was like a mid run. And there I am like talking about how amazing Jimi Hendrix is. Yeah, but then you you were just to- like, I was glad that I was like kind of that revealing about myself that I didn't try and just kind of like- Edit. E- edit myself because then you were like super responsive. Yeah, and yeah. I was just like, oh. And aren't you got, like- curating something about Jimi Hendrix or is that? Oh, no, I'm not. Um, I do like quite a few bits and pieces with the Handel Hendrix Museum, which I don't know if people know that museum, but it's one of my favorite museums. Um, it's where it's the house that both Handel, of Handel's Messiah fame, uh, lived and composed, and Jimi Hendrix lived in the same, in the same building, in the flat above. Um, so it's been, tra- it's been um, recreated into what it was like in Handel's day on one floor, and Hendrix Oh, where is it? Where is this? Uh, in Mayfair, in Brook Street. Oh. It's wow. incredible. Um, so they've been closed for about two years doing renovations, and they're opening again. Well, they're having like an opening event thing, and I was working on a as a contributor for a film that they're making Amazing. about Jimi Hendrix. I didn't even know about that music. It's such I want to go. You have to, have to go like together. It's, it's 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 really epic. Cool. Um, Thank you all for coming, everybody. Yeah, thanks, it's so everyone. Amazing. It's just been amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Emma. My Thank God, you, this Emma. is Emma. Emma. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> and if you haven't read Emma's books, you must buy her yes, books. Yes, yes, yes. Don't touch my hair. Incredible you. book. I love it. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.